Hi, this is Azimuth World Foundation's podcast, Connecting the Dots. With the help of our guests, we will be connecting the dots between matters of access to public health and safe water and the balance between humankind and nature among indigenous and rural communities. Hello, good morning. My name is Mariana Marx, and I'm the executive director of Azimuth World Foundation. The original inhabitants of the Great Lakes region of Central Africa, the Batwa, were semi-nomadic forest-dwelling expert hunter-gatherers. Currently, they speak many different languages and live in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, and also in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The Batwa identify as indigenous peoples, and even though some still practice the ancient traditions that are part of their rich culture, their traditional way of life is disappearing. In 1991, following conservation projects by the Ugandan government and Western international agencies to protect endangered mountain gorillas, the Batwa were removed from their ancestral forests. This was done without their free, prior, and informed consent, any public hearing or compensation. Consequently, these ancestral people who live in harmony with other species and their surrounding environment suffered a sudden and profound change in, their, in the way that they live. This possession of land meant being unable to hunt or gather, leading to extreme poverty and the breakdown of social relations. Along with social marginalization, their small numbers and almost inexistent political representation also mean institutional marginalization. Their access to state health services, clean water, shelter, food, and education is minimal. One of Azimuth's current grantees is the Windy Community Hospital, whose Battle Outreach program we are supporting. This program aims to improve the water, sanitation, hygiene, and psychosocial situation among the Battle communities living in Kanungu district in Uganda. Our wish to learn more about the Batwa makes biologist and anthropologist Ruviogo a perfect guest for this episode. An associate professor at Howard University in Washington, D.C., his extensive, his extensive work as a researcher, speaker, and writer is renowned worldwide for addressing broader scientific questions and societal issues using state-of-the-art empirical data from many different fields of science. Rue is a member of the American Association for Anatomy and George Washington Center for the Advanced Study of Hominid Paleobiology. In 2022, as part of his anthropological research at Howard University, he traveled to Gabon, Uganda, and Rwanda with an international team of scientists, physicians, and filmmakers, where they visited Batwa and Barca villages. We're honored to have Rubio with us today to share some of the firsthand experience and knowledge regarding the Bata situation. Rui, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Um, <laughs> thank you. I was thinking that uh, perhaps you could start by giving us uh, some background on your research work and approach and how that led to focusing on the Batwa for this specific project. Uh, yes. So I did a, yes, a PhD in biology in Belgium and a PhD in anthropology in GW uh, at Washington, D.C., George Washington University. And since some years ago, especially in my last books, I talk a lot about racism, about narratives that are made about the others, including many times, interestingly, in science, that science itself, we tend to think it's neutral, but science itself, it's as biases and, and, and prejudices as many other fields. So that has been my work. And lately I'm going more and more to places that we will say that science often does not reach so much. So it's like a new kind of science we are doing, the science about and for the excluded. So in the summer, precisely we went to Gabon, to Rwanda and to Uganda, it was about conservation projects, about apes, but also with a distance, an intellectual distance, to see from the outside how those conservation projects that mainly were Western ideas, right? And some of them did amazing things, as you said, protecting the gorillas in Rwanda and so on. But what was the other side of it? So we talk with locals, for instance, living near Kibale in, in Uganda or near the mountain, uh, the mountain gorillas in, in Rwanda and ask the, the locals, for instance, are you... 
agreeing or not with these projects, do you like it or not? And we begin to see more and more deeply that there was actually a lot of skepticism and actually even hatefulness sometimes against, especially uh, in Rwanda, against some of these projects or so-called conservation mm-hmm. projects. Because as you said, even before that, especially after that in 91, for instance, in Rwanda, that's when, for instance, the Batwa were removed completely from the forest, meaning they cannot go to the forest legally, right, and live in the forest. So that really created a huge problem for, for, for them, and not only for them, for the communities, Bantu communities, so because there is the Batwa, as I said, right, uh, indigenous communities, but then there was there are also the Bantu agricultural communities that lived also near the forest or were hunting, let's say, elephants or, or gorillas, right? And they were also uh, out of the forest. But yes, so that is mainly a bit what we do, combining a bit anthropology with biology, conservation of primates, but trying to make a way that that conservation will not affect directly also people, because we, we care a lot about the gorillas and they are thriving in Uganda, in Rwanda, mm-hmm. it's amazing. But the people that were thrown out of the forest, like the Batu, they're not thriving at all, right? They're really suffering a lot. And that's what we have to think about. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And what are some of the goals of having uh, such a multidisciplinary team approach to this, this topic that you're, you're, we're talking about? So I think the important point of having this multidisciplinary team, including doctors, uh, physicians, veterinarians, mm-hmm. It's really to have a broader perspective on these complex issues, because let's say if I only study gorillas, right, I will be happy to have a lot of gorillas now in Rwanda, right? Rwanda is an amazing organization by local people, veterinarians that go to the forest and take care of the gorillas. But if I'm with physicians at the same time, they say, well, it's amazing they are doing this for the gorillas, but we don't see the kind, the same kind of of detailed, uh, detailed uh, analysis of health even among people, especially among the Batu, right? There is nobody going to the Batu villages to check if they are okay, as gorilla doctors almost mm-hmm. daily do with the gorillas, meaning we are taking much more care and spending much more money on the health of the gorillas than of the health of the Batu. So when we have a big group like that, we can see all the kind of layers, the different layers, and see the problems. Interestingly, when, when we were in Rwanda in the last days, there was the APAC meeting, as it was an official Rwandan meeting, international meeting, about uh, conservation and indigenous communities. And they officially recognized, so in the summer of 2022, uh, that conservation did a lot of mistakes, and especially mm-hmm. by throwing out indigenous people. So it was an official recognition by the conservation world. Interestingly enough, the Batwa were not represented as the, as the indigenous. They brought people from Kenya, from indigenous communities from Kenya and Tanzania. But of course, the Batwa government, uh, the Rwandan government could not show the Batwa as an example because they, they are not existent for the for the government. After the genocide, with good reasons, perhaps, mm-hmm. but also with bad results, the Batwa don't exist as a group. There is no Batwa, there is no uh, no 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 groups, uh, ethnic groups officially in Rwanda. They are all Rwandan, right? So that mm-hmm. was actually an interesting point to see how excluded they are. It is interesting because just these days you know, uh, in Congo, uh, there was this recent victory for the Battle of Congo with the promulgation of the first legislation in the country that recognized and safeguards the specific rights of the indigenous pygmy peoples, such as their right, uh, rights to the land. Um, so it's interesting to hear, you know, uh, in, in countries that are neighbors, uh, how their, uh, you know, their approach to the indigenous communities. Yes, uh, yes, uh, please go ahead. (laughs) Because as you say, it's a very interesting point. They are not really treated or even perceived in the same way. So in general, it's a politically incorrect word because it's not the reality even, but it's uh, in general, what are these people's called, as you say, the peoples from indigenous people from the Congo Basin? They are often called the so-called pygmies, right? Because they tend to be shorter. What is like a, a kind of mm-hmm. strange name to use? Yes. But that is the way to designate in an easier way to say, like the Baka in Gabon mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. are biologically very similar to the Batwa because they all came from the same population. Fifty thousand years ago, they went to the Congo Basin, and as you said, they had different languages, completely different uh, types of life and languages than the Bantu mm-hmm. or agricultural. A community, right? That is most of the people now in Africa, right? So now they are really a minority in all these countries. 
But the way they are perceived is very different, for instance. They are always deemed to be inferior, always, by the locals. The locals always think as the so-called pygmies as inferior. But that's not exactly then the same way they are treated. In Gabon, the Baka, the Baka can be in the forest. They are not, they are, were not thrown out of the forest that are in Rwanda. In Rwanda, they cannot live in the forest. Congo and in Cameroon, there are many villages that still are in the forest, even if they are not really nomad anymore, right? But they live still in the forest. But for instance, in, in, in the Baka are often seen in Gabon and Cameroon as healers. People recognize mm-hmm. that they know a lot about the forest. People actually are a bit even afraid there is this Baka ghost that because they move in the forest without making sounds. It's almost like if they are like a yeah. forest ghost, but they are respected. So most Bantu will not dare to go. Even when we were there, they said, we'll not go with you. We don't go to the deep forest. Right? Only Baka will dare to do that, but they are respected in a way. They are deemed inferior, but for instance, the Bantu population can go to the Baka to try to heal themselves. They, they know okay. that they know a lot about the forest and medicine. But for instance, in Rwanda, for instance, in Uganda, I guess it's because people almost never saw, the people now never see the Batwa in, their, in the forest. They only see them as beggars, almost in villages. So they don't have that perception that they know so much about forest or about medicine. They are not seen as, as people that know a lot or people that heal. They can heal the body. Mm-hmm. So the niche that they thrive, they are really removed. So the Bantu see them completely out of their niche. The case of Uganda and Rwanda and the Batwa, the project probably you are doing in, in Uganda too, it's really extreme. It's perhaps one of the more extreme I have seen in my life in terms of complete exclusion and, and discrimination mm-hmm. against the Batwa. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I can see from, you know, uh... Uh, your your this conversation that you are you know you're very familiar with the Batu and Baka uh, situation in, in in Rwanda Uganda and also in Congo, but what will be you know uh, some of the defining traits of these people that really stood out for you? I, I we already heard you talking about you know has the healers and their medicine, but other what are the other uh, traits that for you really stood out? Yes, it's a very good question, right? Because even they asked me when we talk about them in the West, they said we should um, we should empower them, right? Again, not see them or not especially treating them as the uh, endangered communities. That is the official name, I think, in Rwanda, right? They they are not, first, they are not endangered, perhaps their cultures are, and of course, many of them are starving or being alcoholic, but we, we tend to only see these darker sides, Right. That may not consequences of what we did to them, right? By throwing them mm-hmm. out the forest. But but they are amazing, amazing sites and still nowadays, right? They know much more about medicine than we think. Because I know that there is now this new trend of new agers saying we have to go back to the forest to, and they have a lot of powers and everything. But even when you talk about that, even the people that admire people like indigenous people, they tend to focus more on the myths or on the shaman. But that's that's just almost like a folklore. We always use these terms as, oh, is they are mystical. No, but they do know a lot. They do scientifically know a lot about medicine. It's not just Kumbaya, mm-hmm. it's not Shaman. It's, they really know a lot about medicine because they know these forests more than we know. Right? They know these plants for 50,000 of years. They know what can cure you. Analgesics. They have amazing natural analgesics that in, in minutes you will not feel any pain even with a, a big cut. Right. So we have seen all these things. They know a lot. Of course, they have beliefs as we have beliefs. Right. But it's not. But beliefs after people. That's why I think an anthropological view is, is interesting because the beliefs normally come after the fact. So first you have, let's say. Uh, Muslim populations, they don't eat pork because at that time pork was killing a lot of people actually in, in, in the desert. Mm-hmm. right? And then it begins to be a belief. Right? Mostly of these beliefs, they do have a scientific foundation in the beginning. So seeing only these uh, indigenous people as having these beliefs, etc., is really like a Western way of minimizing what they know. And, and I'm doing a work uh, with a Kyoto professor, Michael Luffman. They explain mm-hmm. to us almost the evolution of medicine that is very different from what we tend to see. We tend to see medicine as uh, just a human thing, right? And mm-hmm. basically a Western thing, right? But clearly, most of the things we know, even, I don't know if you know, but the most powerful anti-malaria, one of the few that still works, anti-malaria, 
mm-hmm. that is saving uh, treatments or, or, or prevention that is saving the life of millions of people came from ancient China uh, uh, novels, right? Most of the things we still use came from a long time from indigenous populations and so on. So, so they told me several times that many times they learn with the apes, what is very interesting, and it makes sense. We came from Africa, we humans came from, from Kenya, Ethiopia, and the drier mm-hmm. parts. 50,000 years ago, these people went to the forest. And of course, first of all, they try an error, that's medicine. So they will try a plant, it works or not, medicine. But they could also do something else and have a head start saying, okay, but we can look to animals that are similar to us, like gorillas and mm-hmm. chimpanzees. And we can see what they are using because the chimpanzees and the gorillas have been there for six millions of years. So they, they have a head start because they look and they told me, like, if, if we see a, a wounded chimpanzee with a wound in the in the leg, we will, before, when they could, they were nomads, they would stop the camps and be weeks there looking at what the chimpanzee will put in the leg, which plants, which minerals, and so on. And they will try the same. And if it worked, they will start to use that. So the evolution of human medicine came a lot also from observing the forest the behavior of animals. That is perhaps the part that is more minimized. I think in anthropology, I I, I wrote this in the, in the article I did about the butter, right? When we say, mm-hmm. if you Google right now, what is the world expert about gorillas' behavior? Mm-hmm. And you will have Diane Fossey, right? A yes. Western person that yes. spent... Mm-hmm. And clearly she knew a lot. She she spent there years. She she spent hours of observation. Nobody's saying that she did not know more than probably any Western. But now saying that she is the world expert like, makes no sense because the Batwa live with the gorillas for 50,000 exactly. of years. Like Batwa did not hunt so much the gorillas, but some of them did hunt them. And to hunt an animal, you have to know everything about that animal. You have to know what plant is it going to eat at that time so you can find, find the animal. Clearly, the Batwa and the Baka are the most are the world experts about gorilla behavior and chimpanzee behavior. You know? And that is something that we have to empower. If we go to know more about gorillas and chimpanzees, we have to ask them. Not going us, telling them, right? Because we have this professorial mm-hmm. idea. We go and teach them about the apes. Teach them about what? <laughs> like they know much more about the apes than we do. It's like it's like a, a bat were coming to coming to US and say, I will teach you about wolves. <laughs> like, no, yeah. you want to teach about wolves because we know about wolves because we live here, right? So there is still so much in science of this of these layers of racism and that nocentry and as you said the characteristics is that they know a lot a lot about medicine about behavior of animals mm-hmm. uh, in a way a bit more in a holistic way to see the forest i think we tend to be reductionist in the west right we tend to have this mm-hmm. one but they do i'm not saying they are better or worse nobody is better or worse but they do have a a, a broader vision of the forest and the many components so if you take one thing it will affect other things for instance conservation mm-hmm. was we'll protect the gorillas only focus on one species but that's yeah. not how the forest works ecosystem yes <laughs> and yes. that is a good point about what the mistake of conservation it was not only to exclude the batwa and the baka and etc from the forest because they they had ways of protecting the forest but that there is a thing that nobody talks about even biologists that is so important because we tend to see humans as outs as non-animals right so we tend to think that the bat were, were there and you can just remove them and everything is normal is okay but not because like i said the baka are hunters mainly right so if you mm-hmm. take a hunter from the ecosystem you are affecting perhaps the the, the praise they were having now can reproduce more and affect the forest so yeah, removing yeah. a hunter gather from the forest it's you will pay a price for that and i think they have better novels about the whole system because they depend on, on it right yeah well, thank you, uh, Rui. Well, you know, you touched so many important things. Uh, you talked about, you know, uh, and it's interesting. I actually read your article that you talk about, Diane Fossey. I remember in the article, you talked about something like the Tarzan narrative, right? So can you explain to us what you have called the Tarzan ra- narrative through which the bath have been misrepresented in Africa, in the West? Kind of picking up a little bit of your article and bringing uh, the uh, indigenous community, the Bata community. Yes. 
So for the well for the broader public, right about Tarzan, I think yeah. most people will yeah. know about Tarzan. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing, and that was my last book, um, The Meaning of Life, as I call it, and these narratives, right? Because the the interesting thing about these things about Tarzan and King Kong, when, when we saw these things, we were naive, we were young, and you think, oh, they're just movies, right? But mm -hmm. when you really read the history, even of literature, of movie cinema, uh, you really see that these movies were not done as randomness, right? They had actually a message and many of them really had a racist message and a racist agenda, like King Kong especially. There is a whole book about it, right? Mm -hmm. I think the other comes to your country and takes your, your woman and destroys mm -hmm. your, your technology, right? The plane. So Tarzan was really a moment that some people, especially in the US, right? Like it has to be a white person that still saves African animals and so on, right? So we have this narrative and these movies and so on. And it's very interesting to see that the way we tend to think about dying forces, especially, then really to portray her as, as, a, as a Tarzan, right? She, she went to Africa, she protected the animals, the gorillas, and she, she kicked out the bad people from the forest, right? The battle. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing construction that makes no sense at all at a biological, factual point of view, because the battle and the Baco were living in the forest for 50,000 of years. Clearly, the gorillas were thriving then. There was no problem with the gorillas. So how can you argue that the that those indigenous people are the problem? Because they sometimes eventually had them, not even much actually, but they sometimes makes no sense at all, right? The gorillas begin begin to be endangered after colonialism and also with the agriculture from the Bantu, right? If the Bantu mm -hmm. are only farmers, they need field. That is a problem of being of agriculture. We always tend to think as the best thing in human evolution. But agriculture is a strange moment, if you think, because it's a moment that we see the forest and nature as enemy. Right? The forest is the enemy because you need to have crops. It's very strange mm -hmm. that in agriculture, you begin to have this outside of nature and nature is the enemy, right? So it was the Bantu farmers that mainly need, as today, they need more terrain, right? And as you know, as you just said also, the Westerns, not only the Westerns, but nowadays the Chinese and the Indians, they need a lot of resources from Africa, right? So in, in Gabon, it was so amazing, we said, because everybody knows it's illegal, officially. There is this amazing tree that was one of the most expensive in the world that cannot be taken down from the forest in Gabon. But every day I saw at least 50 huge trucks with huge, huge trees. And we know they are going to India and to China mainly because a good thing of these countries, they are having more middle class. So everybody's happy. Again, no good, no bad, because everybody's happy that they have more middle class. Mm -hmm. But middle class wants tables of, of wood and they want computers and everything. So these resources are always coming from Africa, basically, right? So, so it's mainly the non-Africans or the African farmers that are putting the stress on the forest and on the gorillas. Nothing to do with the indigenous, but the narrative we did, it changed completely. The bad ones are the Batwa and the Bakwa. You have to throw them out on the forest. You know, it's completely reversing the reality. And 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 that is is particularly sad. And I Fawcett play a, a huge role on that narrative, right? She really literally blamed the Batwa. She said they should be thrown out of the forest. But you don't see that even when we went to Diane Fossey Foundation in Rwanda. Yeah, the last, yeah, it's, it's really tragic. They don't say it in the videos. That was just a small part that said that she had some problems with local communities, but they don't really go to detail to say what she did to the Batwa was horrible. And it's sad to say, but we know it, right? Me, you, I think everybody else, they will never go back to the forest. Because mm -hmm. these gorillas are making a lot of money for the government. Yeah. You know, it's $1,400 to see gorillas for two hours. Imagine mm -hmm. how much money the government is doing. So I, I remember in the Batwa village in near Kigali, they were doing like sculptures of gorillas and they were saying, this is so important for our culture. The gorilla is, is the main thing for our culture. And I asked them, so have you seen a gorilla? And they said, no, they, they will never be able to see a gorilla. I guess. And the Westerns that have the money to pay $1,400 plus a plane and etc., so perhaps $5,000 to see gorillas for two hours. Those are the ones that will see the gorillas. And the people that lived on those forests that have these mythologies and everything, they, they will never be able to see them, right? It's, it's, it's unbelievable if you think. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very sad, but true what you're saying. Um, you know, we're talking here, you know, uh, important things. Do you believe fortress conservation is still as strong today as it was when the bat were evicted? 
what are what are some of your expectations regarding this type of conservation in Africa? You know, we already heard you a little bit, kind of you bringing your opinion about it, but perhaps you could develop on that. Yes, so nobody's criticizing. I, I tend to be, well, in my books and everything, very neutral in between. So you can see, for instance, I, I say that the Batu and the Bakon know a lot about medicine, but I will not criticize modern medicine neither or Western medicine. And about conservation is the same. So protecting the gorillas in Rwanda was amazing because the gorillas at, at that time were endangered and many gorillas still are in danger, as you probably know, but orangutans are supposed to be extinct in almost 50 years only. So you see, that I think is good to have this broader perspective, because I can criticize the, the Rwandan government by throwing out the battle. True. But at the same time, seeing what I saw in Gabon, that the government is allowing all these forests to be decimated, the Rwandan government and the Ugandan government are doing something better, right? They realize that they can make a lot of money with the gorillas. So they have motivation to not destroy the forest because the forests are giving them a lot of money. Mm -hmm. In Gabon, it's really wild west now. They are just decimating everything for the gold, for the wood and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and gorillas are, are will suffer much more in Gabon, right? So nobody is criticizing Rwanda, criticizing Gabon. But the conservation projects that are really starting to be done, and we are doing actually in um, Guinea, uh, Guinea and uh, other countries in West Africa are now really changing this paradigm and are using the local population as the main people that are doing the conservation. Right, for instance, in Guinea, the PPI, the project, the group where I with, with I'm working in the sanctuaries and so on for chimpanzees, because there is a lot of trade, uh, there is a lot of, of meat trade, but also very sadly, what is growing, growing a lot from the China and from the Middle East is the pet trade. People that want to have chimpanzees at home to show in TikTok and so on. It's really, really mm -hmm. sad. In our in our sanctuary, we have these small chimpanzees with, with bullets in their heads. It's really sad. But now we are mainly empowering the local population. As Rwandan, for instance, they should have done what they did in protecting the gorillas, but the Batwa should be the ones leading those projects, right? Not Bantu guardians, and especially Western people from above directing the things, right? Because they lack that mm -hmm. broader perspective. We are paying the price, for instance, in Zimbabwe. As you probably know, we are having this Western all or nothing thing. We have to protect elephants in all Africa. Mm -hmm. But Africa is very different from the parts to parts, right? In Zimbabwe, the elephants are thriving so much that there are too many elephants right now. And so the Zimbabweans are saying, why do we have to do that law that is coming from the West while it's really too much? It's too much, right? So they don't want to have so many elephants. But again, if the locals were, were be able to have more voice, they will probably say, well, this is too much, blah, blah, blah. They will see the whole picture. But in the West, it's like, no, protect elephants. It doesn't matter. Everything else is just one-to-one. -one. Yes. So, so it's changing, right? Nobody... Uh, nobody is really defending throwing out indigenous people from the forests anymore. That is a big mm -hmm. change. We have to bring them back and help yes. and learn with them how they were doing to preserve. And that's, again, it's important to be neutral. I'm not saying that they love the forest and Kumbaya, etc. They just need to preserve the forest and that's why they were really good at doing it because they depended on it. We don't depend mm -hmm. on the forest because we are agricultural precisely, but they depend on the forest. If something is going wrong, they will die. So they had an interest that everything will be fine-tuned in the forest, right? So that's why they know so much about it. They depend their life on it, right? Mm -hmm. So not necessarily because they were ecologists or so on. If you tell them about being ecologists, they will say, what is even that? You know, that is the perception of a very Western way of seeing the world. I've seen, you know, like you and other scientists and researchers kind of having that openness to, to hear the traditional ecological knowledge. But... You know, I, I, I'm glad to see, you know, that more and more uh, scientists, you know, especially when it comes to conservation, but also medicine, like you just said, the importance of, of, of you know, learning uh, as long, of course, as the indigenous communities uh, want to share that knowledge, of course. Um, but there is still, I think, a lot of work that needs to be done regarding, you know, the Western science. And you know, and how it looks to the you know the traditional ecological knowledge, as we know, it's crucial for for the world. 
And, you know, um, and I do think it's it's so extremely important to hear from a biologist. Why is it so important to value traditional ecological knowledge? Yeah, I, I agree. And I think of all the layers we covered uh, about, let's say, indigenous people being important for the forest, forest for the conservation, that is beginning to be more consensual, right, as we said. Mm-hmm. But of the layer that you just said is is really less recognized, and I would say is a really minority of scientists and broader public, especially, I would say even like two three percent only is the the knowledge about bio biology, right? The knowledge about facts. Even people that I read a paper that is trying to defend the traditional knowledge, but insists all the times in the beliefs and the beliefs and the beliefs. It's like me going and saying about about Israel or something and just focusing on their beliefs instead of saying, I don't know, the medicine they do, etc. Mm-hmm. It's all very Western-sized, romanticized idea of, of the other. And I think that is slowly changing, but very, very slowly. And one good thing is that when you go without wanting to know things, right? Because mm-hmm. If you go and ask to the baka, do gorillas eat fish? That is a, a danger, right? Because that's why not only Westerns go with the, with the goal and they have a grant and go with the goal. But if you ask, they are smart to understand, oh, if the Westerns want me to say that they eat gorilla, they, the gorilla eat fish, I will say so because they perhaps will bring projects and those projects will bring, will bring perhaps some money for us and everything. So it was not at the point. We were just there at the villages. We were not asking any question about this. And often they said to us, um, the when you see the gorillas eating fish, and even me, you know, I think this is happening to me because I wrote my books three or four years ago, and those books helped me to deconstruct these narratives before. Because a typical scientist will just say, oh, it's impossible. Like, gorillas don't eat fish. Like, we will tell them that live for 50,000 years there that it's impossible, right? But, of course, now I think a bit differently, and I was just surprised. I said, well, but in theory, gorilla cannot eat fish. They only eat uh, leaves and sometimes some small um, meat, protein, like insects, etc. right? That is a huge thing in human evolution. Gorilla don't eat animals or fish. And they said, no, but clearly, we see gorillas eating fish. So I went to the West and I said, first of all, if I say this, nobody will say, because they will say, it's an anecdote, right? If it's a mm-hmm. bug saying, it's an anecdote. If it's a scientist going there and showing with a movie, that is a fact. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a scientific fact. It, it's really sad, you know? So I, I even gave up a bit because I will have to have so much work now to go with the team and be hours there and film the thing so Western science recognize if it's really true. But then I talked with this Michael Uffman from Tokyo and he said that it is exactly the same thing that happened with monkeys in the Himalayas. Locals said they eat fish, and, and the scientists were like, it's impossible, those monkeys can never eat fish. And now, now we know very well, because scientists went there, that they eat fish. So when we commemorate these discoveries, these are discoveries for the West, like indigenous for people, the they did for a long time. But we still, that I think is the bigger thing. Even scientists today, even I'll say liberals, progressives, left-wing, whatever we want to call them, that go with me. They tend to have this narrative. They are going to learn about apes and everything, and they will do that completely disconnected from the knowledge of indigenous people. They will not talk with them. They either will see them as beggars and perhaps give them some money or buy them some eggs or whatever. But they, in their mindset, they have nothing to learn with indigenous people about the biology. One thing is about beliefs. They're interested about when you are getting married, what is the belief and everything. But about knowledge, about real knowledge, because for many people, traditional knowledge is kumbaya knowledge, is interesting, but it's not mm-hmm. factual knowledge. But they know much more factual knowledge that we know about the gorillas and the chimpanzees and the plants. And that's the thing, you know. But that message has to go out there because yes. it's, not, it's not at all still far away yeah, from being. So. Mm. Yeah. You just said something very interesting, and that is true, is that the discoveries are uh, for the Western world, and that still happens quite often. Uh, we've been supporting uh, a program with the Buindi Community Hospital in Uganda. It's called the Batla Outreach Program. And we've been quite aware also about many of the things that you've been saying, you know, how uh, how they're marginalized and uh, all the difficulties that that uh, they face, especially since, you know, uh, 1991. But I think since we've been talking about the traditional ecological knowledge, I think it will also be interesting 
for our viewers and listeners to our podcast to understand what are the consequences of the battle's marginalization in terms of the loss of knowledge? Because I think it will be interesting hearing from you, you know, a researcher, biologist, anthropologist, uh, to understand the damages and the impacts of the loss of the knowledge of such a rich culture as the Batra. Yes, that's a very good question because you can do conservation, you can do animal behavior, right? And you can do biological, cultural anthropology about the knowledge of others, right? And you can do them separately. And they seem to be kind of separate. But the, for the first, and medicine, because those are the four fields, because I, I teach in a medical school. Those are the four fields we do in, do in the laboratory that are already like seem to be very disconnected. And people say, how do you do all these different things? But for the first time now with the back and the battle, I realized everything is together. Because the example I gave about gorilla eating fish, for instance, right? So uh, if that is true, right, that is likely, imagine that either the gorilla are extinct or the orangs are extinct in Asia, right? Let's say the gorillas are extinct, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Or that the baka are thrown out of the forest or the batua and the next generation will be born in, in, in a small village near Kigali, etc. They will not know this. And after like perhaps two generations, we will not know that. So no local people will tell us that. The gorillas will not there be there anymore for the Western scientists to see the fact that they eat gorillas, that they eat fish. So mainly, we will just lose that knowledge. And forever, we will have in this textbook saying that for human evolution is amazingly important because our ancestors, the apes, don't eat meat, don't eat fish almost. Mm -hmm. And you know, all the stories will be wrong because just we we discarded that knowledge, we destroyed the forests, we destroyed the gorillas, and we culturally genocide the people that live there. So now for the first time I see that connection. If we lose either the forest or the animals, apes, for instance, in this case, or the knowledge of the people, we are losing so much. So all the three have to be preserved at the same time, right? But I think that that's that still will be a minimal point for the, most people. I don't know people hearing this podcast, mm -hmm. but I have to be a science communicator and to talk about things that I think the people will care about, right? So I don't think, sadly, I can tell here right now to you, I don't think that is enough a powerful message for the broader people because the broader people doesn't care perhaps less if gorillas eat fish or what we say about human evolution. The selling point, I think, for the broader public here and others, they care about themselves, right? So we care about medicine. And I think the main thing we will lose is about medicine because the Batwa and the Baka, they know a lot about the proprieties of those plants. Clearly, I'm not saying that every time, but clearly many of the cures for cancers, for analgesics, many of the cures have to be in Amazonia, in the Congo Basin, the second biggest mm -hmm. forest world and in the Asian Southeast forests. They, it's scientifically mandatory because those are the biggest forests with the biggest diversity and everything. So if you lose the knowledge that they know, or even the knowledge that the apes know, because clearly the apes know a lot about those forests, right? We, in our generation, especially our kids, will suffer a lot for because many of the things that could come from there, especially natural cures, natural analgesics, right? We are losing all that, right? So we have to really have to preserve the three things, right? The animals and the plants that are in the forest, the indigenous knowledge, and actually the animals that know more about those proprieties themselves, like apes and so on. There is like mm -hmm. this recent study just came this week. They're really simple things, but they are so effective and they could save so many lives. Um, on self-medication of primates. That is something that is being more talked about because people before were like, mm -hmm. oh, they cannot use medicine like other animals. But it, it is an elegant study. We saw them, we saw ourselves, the chimpanzees in Gabon, they go to only sleep in some forests, uh, in some trees. They don't do like roofs as the orangutans, but they do some small nests when, when, they, when they sleep in the trees. But they always use the same kind of 10 types of trees. And it was interesting. Why would they go even so far sometimes to go to those trees to sleep? So a team of researchers did a very simple, elegant study. What can kill you at night in the forest? Because you are already up. A leopard will not go there and everything when you are like, like really on the nest and so on. And they have a big group. Mm -hmm. So mosquitoes, mosquitoes with malaria and everything. Mosquitoes are the big killers, right? And at night they bite and so on. So they just study the proprieties of the trees. And of the 10 species of trees they were sleeping, nine of them had anti-repellent 
mosquito proprieties. Not because the, the chimpanzees know the substance and everything. They just know that when they sleep on those trees, they are less beaten, right? So they are doing medicine. This is medicine. And actually, to show that it was really not randomness, they then studied the thousands of other trees that you have in Gabon, thousands of other types of trees, and only one at anti-repellent. So clearly, they are really choosing. Now, imagine the implications. Now we are studying, do the baka, when they were in the forest, use the same trees? Yes. That would be amazing, right? But we don't know. But imagine they did not know. They could have saved so many lives from malaria if they had used the same plants that the chimpanzees are using for millions of years. So this is the example that there is so much to lose if you lose either the chimpanzees or those plants, these 10 types of trees, right? Or the knowledge of eventually if the bug can know or not about that, that we are actually now trying to find. But this is an example, I think, what common people will care about, perhaps not the gorilla mm -hmm. But about their own health, you know. If you can have mm -hmm. plants that are more effective than the ones we have, and we can also prevent our own malaria when we travel to those places, medicine is something that everybody cares, and I think is the main thing that we will lose if you lose the forest, the apes, or the indigenous people. Thank you. That's a great example of, you know, the damage of you know of losing the traditional ecological knowledge. Thank you, Ray. You know, from, from local governance and institutions to national policies and intervention of the international community and NGOs, a lot of different actions can be taken to change, you know, all these tragic situations, that it, which is indeed how does scientific research, such as the one led by Howard University's team, impact the decisions made on the ground and therefore the lives of these communities, in particular the Baca and the Bato communities? That is a very good question and it's something that um, me and a team of other people, when the ones that went there uh, to, to these countries, including filmmakers and so on, are thinking deeply about because we are not used to have scientific questions or even societal questions that are so difficult to kind of solve, right? But the one you just ask is perhaps the million dollar question, right? What is it, all these things changing for the people that live there, but also at a top down, if you can call like that level, right? And clearly, we can see that in the local roots, organizations like yourself or the, lo the local Batwa organizations we, we deal with and, and the back communities, we can see there is a change, as you say, in terms of at least some Western people, because there is a problem, you could say, so why they even need Westerns, right? You know, why they could they could just solve all these things now by themselves, let's say. But where are the funds coming from? Like if you have a country like Rwanda that doesn't even recognize the Batwa, where will be the funds coming from to help them to thrive, or especially to preserve that knowledge when the government of Rwanda does not want them to preserve the knowledge, it wants to integrate them completely in the so-called Bantu type of living. So they have no motivation to do that. So unless the funds come from the West, where are they coming from? That is the sad part of neocolonialism, right? We can fight against it. I'm a big fighter against it. But the mismatch between the top down, because there is still a top down and most of the money comes from the West and most of the money does not come from even organizations like yours that are amazing. But clearly people that live in Washington, D.C. and the main funders and the ones that take decisions about uh, hunting or not elephants, these decisions are taking in Washington, D.C. It's amazing that you think that Zimbabwe has to obey what comes from Washington, D.C. regarding hunting elephants. They cannot hunt elephants, even if everybody in Zimbabwe wants to do it now, even the government, but they cannot because officially you cannot hunt uh, uh, elephants in that way in Africa and so on. So those people that are taking decisions here where I live in Washington, D.C., and I know some of them, it's difficult to change the paradigm. What we said today for them will be seen as like a blasphemy or something, not because they are racist or whatever. It's just that there are so many layers of deconstruction because we work in this field, we have to travel and everything. But most people will really don't think that the Batwa have nothing to tell us about no else, or clearly they know nothing about medicine, you know, they only do voodoo. And, and, and I talk with these people on a daily basis, and even if we say these things, it's very difficult to deconstruct. So I'm a bit more skeptical about the top down being changed. Clearly, some things are changed. IPEC was actually big fish, ministers and everything recognizing that indigenous people should not have been thrown out of the forest. That is already a change, right? Ministers mm -hmm. and everything of Africa saying that. But the top, top down coming from the West with their funds to help conservation projects, 
they still don't have really that mindset because it comes from people that are very far from our field. And I don't mm -hmm. see it changing so much. I'm a bit skeptical, but I think it will change eventually. But I'm saying mm -hmm. top-down is more difficult. So what we are trying now to do is actually the opposite, right? Is to do these projects with the local communities, like the BATU and so on that we talked about. But then try to, how can we change the broader public? Because eventually the broader public is what needs to be changed. Because if the broader public knows that the BATU knows more about biology and gorillas or about medicine, then they will put pressure on politicians and everything. But the, the, the broader public is the last one normally to receive the information because the media are very, very biased and like these stories about voodoo and shaman. It's much more appealing of voodoo and a shaman than about one saying that gorillas eat fish, right? So that, that's the problem, right? So so that is what we want to change. How can we show in movies, documentaries, exhibits, empower and show the knowledge, the real knowledge of those people, right? That's why this podcast also is about. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is. And what are some future steps for your team's Bantle and Baca research project? Yes, so now we will really start to apply things in a more applied way because the Batwa and the Bakwa, again, they say, okay, all these things are nice. We want to be empowered, we want to be known, but we are literally starving. Many of them are literally starving. We went to the villages and we were trying to, in the village, to know more about what they know about apes, right? We were trying to also do documentaries. So we have movies with them and they and they were happy with that and everything. But they, of course, the question was always like, okay, what are you giving us? And so we did give often things like, you know, um, pets or like a toothbrush and everything for, for health. But clearly that is not like many of them were really literally starving. They were really like begging us that the kids were starving. They could die in weeks, the kids. And we saw one of them had a huge wound. And I know that wound will will basically infect and the, and the arm will have to take off. And he said, just give me $10 so I can go to a doctor. And you are put in a strange situation, right? Because of course, $10 is, is a beer in DC. Why would I not give $10? But then you think, if I will give to each of them, because he was in front of, I think, 200 people that were in with us. If you give to each of them, first of all, that's a problem, right? And not a problem in itself. It's just that we also don't want, I don't know if you know this book, that is The Beggars and the and the workers. The problem of conservation and even NGOs in the way is that we are also doing a paradigm, even tourism, that we tend to see the other, especially indigenous people, as beggars or or workers, right? That's the only interaction that most Westerns will have, right? When you go to a hotel in Kigali, you will see perhaps some indigenous people, but or something serving you, or even worse, if you go to a village, they will be beggars, right? We always see them. The tourism is helping a bit the local populations, but helping them always as beggars and subservient, right? You don't see them as equals when you go as a tourist in the West. So we also have conscious about that and you don't want to replicate the cycle. If you, every time we are with a Batwa person or community, every time you are, we have to give something, it gives the, the impression again of this cycle of neocolonialism that whites are givers and we are receivers and that is the way the things are. And that clearly should not be. We should have some interactions. It was so amazingly stressful uh, morally, these decisions that we had to take at that moment. And actually, we never give, except for except for those things, we never give directly like money because we want to make things. So what we are directly doing with Richard, the projects I told you about, water, water. Mm -hmm having water for the villages that is a big big thing because many of the diseases they die with the kids they will be very easily avoidable very easily i saw them dying i saw kids dying there and we knew it was it would be so easy to prevent even the ones dying with malaria you know we have these pills that that in, are basically very effective to prevent you know so these things we we saw things that could be preventable so yeah having pills for malaria having water and one of the most amazing projects, not Richard, but actually I, I think the name is Pygmy Alliance in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. I would actually like to say the name because it's the most amazing I saw. The most amazing that I saw because it was really not within, within the Western framework. It was made also by Abatwa. And it was really not on this so-called development that they have to be integrated or something. No, it was really like in a respectful way. And they are building schools schools but schools that also protect still that knowledge not just schools to know what we know right or what mm -hmm. we think is important and they were uh, doing some um, 
some canteens in the school so the kids could eat for it. So they have the motivation to go to school because they have food. And that's basically the only food they will have mostly for a normal meal for, for a day. So those things are the ones we are going to invest and ask funds for and grants for to go to the local level. But again, that will not made, save all the main problem that is the cultural genocide, right? Because mm-hmm. even if you go to schools and even hospitals, in the end of the day, we are sure that in a hundred years, they will know nothing about the forest, about gorillas, about nothing, right? And not only because we want them to know what we want them to know, is because they themselves say that they would like to preserve this knowledge. So how do you address that? That is the question we are trying still to solve. How can we address the bigger problem while addressing the small problems? Because all these small problems in the water and the hospitals are amazing. But all of them are winning in a framework that if they all work amazingly, the sad part is that if they work amazingly, their lives could be better in the sense of being more westernized and having dying less. But clearly not perhaps the quality of life they had. Clearly, you cannot compare the quality of life of a pathway that even you will have a decent life in a village near Kigali than the quality of life it they had like a hundred years ago. And this is not blah 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 or kumbaya or romanticized. We do tests about that because that was mainly the subject of my book. We measure blood stress levels. We measure not blah blah blah, we measure biology, biology, physiological components that show that the life of those people now, even if they become lawyers, let's say, it's much less than they had mostly. People have this idea that people, indigenous people were living very badly, they were starving most of the time. No, there is not even a word for starving in their language. They never starve because they had 200 different kinds of fruits. If one goes wrong, there are other ones. They never starve. They were like, this is not romanticizing. We have data showing that. Agriculture is when you start because you have two or three crops, like Ireland. One of them, potato goes wrong and the whole people is suffering. Now we have the crops problem in Ukraine and everything. This is not normal for indigenous people because they have at least every week they eat from 200 different plants. Right? They don't depend on a single one. So this idea that they died when they were 30 and everything is completely westernized. You know, They don't die. Many kids die. So the life expectancy in average could be, let's say, 35 if many kids die. And that is a problem, of course, that we have to change. But if they did not die until they were 10, the, the model lifespan of, let's say, the Simani in Bolivia, it's 82 it's higher than any any population in the world. 82 <laughs> life model span. I think the age you will normally survive if you don't die until you are 10. So we have to really, again, as you see, you have to change all this framework of thinking that they were suffering and everything. So we have to also combine that and try to have them having a quality of life together with nature, right? How do you have a quality of life? You can never even see a forest, right? So yeah, yes, it's difficult. We have having approached all these Minimal problems that we are trying to solve with the funds and everything, but then also how can we solve the bigger problems, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, Rudio, thank you for this incredible opportunity to learn more about the battle and more importantly to understand how valuable their knowledge and history are. I think there's absolutely urgency, I would even say, like a moral obligation to defend the battle survival and the dignity of their day-to-day lives. Uh, I think we must work to undo the grave damage of forced eviction from their ancestral lands. And after learning so much today, we urge our listeners and viewers to support the battle as much as they can directly, either through the Buinda Community Hospital, and you can find more information on how to do so on their website, or through local battle-led organizations. And we also will share these links at the end of this video at our own web page for this interview. But before we wrap up, I would like to ask you, Rui, if you want to add anything else to this conversation. Well, I want to add that what you are doing, it's amazing, you know, like what you are doing, because you are doing, for instance, the hospital project, but clearly you are doing it with the mindset of being aware, right, of the context and being respectful, empowering them, and the mindset in which you are doing it. So really, thank, the only thing I want to say is thank you so much, because you are the one doing amazing things for them, you know, more than me so far so yes well thank thank you so much it's been a pleasure to talk with you today thank you thank you for listening to connecting the dots an azimuth world foundation podcast join the conversation on our website azimuthworldfoundation.org or by following us on instagram twitter facebook or linkedin